Welcome to episode one. Question is, do we love cinema or do we love film? For those that may have missed our initial intro to this podcast produced by Lab 111, in short, we're here to celebrate cinema. During an extremely challenging period in all our lives, in every way unimaginable, we who have been involved in film have certainly felt estranged with our oasis, our gathering point. Me, along with three others. Here we go. Yo, what's good? <laughs> Tom. Hello there. And Hugo. Hey, hello. We're going to celebrate cinema firstly, and we're going to unpack why we love it. While each week you'll hear the voices of a cinema programmer, film critic, and filmmaker, this will be a platform for you, our audience, to participate and to celebrate with us as we rebuild our community in a more inclusive and shared way. For now, I'll reside to the shadow, hopefully being more of an elusive figure while I let the other three unpack their own unique love of cinema. So Tom, let's kick off with your cold open. As I lie here waiting for these lonesome, dreadful days to pass, pacing the cage of my homely confines, flipping through my film collection and returning time and time again to the same classic I've watched dozens of times, I began to wonder what it is that I miss so much about going to the cinema. Movies have always been a reflecting pool for me, a space full of fantasies to experience vicariously as to so better understand oneself and the world around us, or, being the preferred mode in the middle of an apocalypse, to escape reality wholesale. Is it that without the fantastical, the real just becomes too unbearably real? One of my all-time favorite fantasies is Alfred Hitchcock's 1958 classic Vertigo, a film that's all about looking, projecting, and very much gazing, and in doing so, asking the viewer what it means to be looking, projecting, and gazing at a film. What makes the greatest film so great is that unlike any other art form, cinema is manifested on what you project onto it as a viewer. As James Stewart, former police detective Scotty, tales the mysterious woman he is tasked to spy on, we project our own thoughts and feelings onto his gaze, making it our own. As cinema can do like no other medium, we get swept up in it all. And so these films become part of who we are. Not just touchstones for small talk at cocktail parties, but signifiers of our very identities. There's a great deal of unrest in the seas of cinema. Ways of change are crashing down on everything from the way films are made to how they are screened. But no matter how the climate has changed over the decades, the medium and its brave creators have always proven to be incredibly versatile in navigating any sea change, finding new streams to traverse and tap into. As the programmer of Lab 111, a cinema dedicated to maintaining and celebrating the rich reflecting pool of cinema, I dearly miss the captain's duties on our ship. There's nothing like putting together the puzzle of a film programming and sharing the experience of escaping into films with others in the magical dark of a film theater. I believe that the past year has proven that we need film more than ever. That we need those 24 frames per second to encounter life through fantasy. To escape and dive deeper into ourselves and each other. We need, however different we may be from one another, to share these experiences with others because it is in sharing those cinematic reveries we can find what it is truly to be together. As I lie here waiting for these lonesome, dreadful days to end, wishing to return to my beloved cinema and the beloved visitors who frequent it, I'm reminded of two Morgan Freeman voiceovers. The first from David Fincher's Seven, which concludes with Freeman stating, Ernest Hemingway once wrote, The world is a fine place and worth fighting for. I agree with the second part. The other, from a sentimental prison drama I need not even name, I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope. The voice of God. 
the voice <laughs> of God. I'm God. Bingo! Yahtzee! Thank you, Tom. Um, that was quite the introduction to this episode, I would say. I don't really know what to say right now. We're all in existential crisis. <laughs> and maybe it's a good idea to sort of get this conversation going based off what you just said. To also, it, I think it also gives quite an insight of who you are and how you've become a programmer, I would say. Because since you've mentioned Vertigo as one of your favorite films... What does that say about you? Are you also a voyeur just as Scotty is his name? Yeah. Yeah. How did, oh, that, wow. s- how did that start? That's immediately diving into very personal things. <laughs> I think I've always been very much interested in how you perceive an- another person, which is pretty much very much about not only projecting onto... Well, Scotty is projecting onto Kim Novak the entirety of the first segment of the movie. He's fantasizing about her uh, while not even really knowing her. He's sort of making that woman into the woman he wants her to be. And uh, I won't spoil Vertigo, but uh, well, you know. And I think that if you take away the sort of male-female relationship that's in there, it does say something very interesting about how we sort of project our own interpretations onto somebody else in general, which is a very difficult thing because um, if you look at somebody, you you think you know who somebody is, but your interpretation of somebody is based on what you bring to to a relationship, I guess, to how you perceive somebody is based on your own memories, feelings, stuff like that, which is also very much the case with cinema and looking at a movie, I think. You bring your own thoughts and feelings to a movie, which sort of shapes the film. Film yeah, is very different but, for anybody. But maybe also distorts real life based on what yeah, you see on the screen. True. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Vertigo is like a film about watching film in a sense. Yeah, very much so. For me, at least. Would you say it's your number one? I know this is a very annoying question. But would you say that this is your number one favorite film of all time? Well, well, we should immediately dive into this horrible thing that what is your favorite film and does that even exist? I think it's a good way exist? of getting, getting to know each other yeah. this moment. For years, I, I had this very weird thing that I had a couple and I picked the one that made sense in the conversation at that moment. Hmm. So I had a very pretentious one. Which uh, was at that time Pierrot Le Fou by Godard. Pierrot Le Fou. Bang. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> we have a buzzer now. And then a couple of other ones, like Apocalypse Now was in there quite recently. A Serious Man by the Coen Brothers was number one. And then at some point I thought, well, I told myself that I had to have a real number one, which was just going to stick. And that became Vertigo. I think it's a very good one to stick with. (laughs) It's an excellent one to stick with, but it's interesting that you say that you had a couple and that you could just pick the one that's most maybe convenient as well in a conversation. Like your favorite film is maybe not necessarily your favorite film of all time per se, because it doesn't even exist, but it's more kind of like a performative tool. Like you try to (laughs) shape your identity based on this one particular film right it it goes along the lines of what you said earlier of projecting your reality based on who's whoever's in front of you sort of shaping your movie preference around that in some way or another so if you would be put on the spot kiriko 
what would you say is your favorite film? Damn, I'm so never prepared for this question. And I think I don't have a couple to choose from. I just go with whatever my heart says in that moment. But I think in general, so I really like documentaries, right? That's what I watch most of the time. The films that I like most are very opposing from one another. So on one side, I really like films that are realer than real. So primarily documentaries by, I would say, like Werner Herzl, or one of my favorite films of all time is The Act of Killing. Mm. But those films also imply the fantasy of people, real people who are living a life that's larger than their own life. So basically, they're documentaries that go more towards fiction, or at least people who think they believe in some type of fiction world that are bombastic and big and colorful. So, I mean, I also really like big and bombastic fiction films like Fellini or whatever. But I think it it sort of goes somewhere in between real and very painful and beautiful and Mm. very colorful. (laughs) So, yeah. But I don't know if I would have to go with one. I would definitely say The Act of Killing. It sticks with me. And I think about it quite a lot. Like Vertigo, also a film about projecting and about <laughs> yeah, movies in a yeah. sense. It's an yeah. interesting choice. It's yeah. a beautiful film. What do you think the the relationship between the real and the bombastic says about you? Damn, I think I also live in a fantasy from time to time. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> well, last year, I mean, this year, we've all been living in a fantasy. Not a nice one, by the way. But. Yeah, yeah. It's also, I mean, in the end, everyone who loves film is escaping from real life essentially and i think i relate to people who believe they're escaping from real life as well so that's the painful truth (laughs) (laughs) your your preference for documentary or bits of non-fiction does that also combine with your work as a journalist is that maybe also why this overlap is there yeah i think so or at least i studied history so i've always been interested in how reality is written down or at least or painted or recorded in any way or another which of course studying history you discover that that is always distorted which in in documentary i feel like you can get to a sense of human life or human emotion that confronting people with a camera is it it brings out a new way of looking at yourself but also of people who are in a film realizing that they can become something else, which is something that I like very much. So yeah, Elliot, how about you? What is your favorite film of all time? Me and Tom were discussing this before. I also have a pretentious one, which is Bicycle Thieves. That's cute. Yeah. (laughs) Bicycle Thieves is not a pretentious film. No, it's very cute. It's not heart-wrenching film. But it's like, it's the kind of film you say, you know, just to show that you have some sort of film knowledge. I know the Italian neo-risk yeah. cinema. <laughs> but otherwise, I'd say Sorry to Body by Boots Riley. Hey, young blood, let me give you a tip. Use your white boys. Mm. Wow. I just really like as well. That's an interesting contrast as well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, though, Hugo? Come on. 
Well, the film critic. I feel. Do you have a pretentious one, or are you very sort of honest? Please say Citizen Kane. Please say <laughs> Citizen Kane. It's not Citizen Kane. It makes no sense. Well, Just say for it. A while, no, no. I'm gonna avenge you. For a while, it was the trial by Orson Welles. Oh wow! <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Which uh, I had like, but that's maybe also I do get into these bits of obsession over a particular either you know subject or genre or director or you know era. So for a while, I was totally like obsessed with the combination of Kafka and Orson Welles. <laughs> and so I just did the whole Kafka and the whole Orson Welles thing simultaneously. And that, you know, all collides quite well with the trial, Orson Welles' <laughs> adaptation of Kafka's book, of course. I'm now like really obsessed with Clint Eastwood films. So I could actually make the case that Sully is my favorite film of all time, but I would be lying maybe a little bit. It would be like Tom's performative party trick. <laughs> maybe at the moment... I'm going to trademark that. <laughs> my favorite film, I think, would be Terrence Malick's The New World, though, which you could say is pretentious based on, like, depending on what kind of person you are. I don't think Terrence Malick films are pretentious at all even his later films that everybody seems to hate, I think they're just really sweet melodramas that are very sincere, almost for some people too sincere. Mm. But it really gets to me. And for me, it's kind of like this, you know, it just tries to get under your skin the whole time. And you have to really put all your cynicism and skepticism away when you watch a Terrence Malick film. And then it's the best thing on earth ever. And that's that's why I want to to go to the movies, right? I want to be like, I don't want to have my guard up all the time when I'm in the cinema. I want to be totally overwhelmed by a piece. And that's what I think Terrence Malick does all the time. And I think The New World is his most melodramatic love story. And I just really love melodramatic love stories. So I don't know what that says about me, (laughs) but I do love this movie. And it's actually very funny that we're starting out like this because. The New World was the last film that I saw in the cinema before the cinemas closed last year in March. And I didn't see it at a very random place. I actually <laughs> saw it right here in Lump 111. Oh, did you know? Uh, I did. <laughs> Iconic. It was in the last weekend before the cinemas closed. And at that moment, everybody was still already getting maybe a bit anxious. And I also was a bit anxious, but... In hindsight, I'm very, very grateful that I went to see that film again because I think I banked on that experience for a couple of months into the pandemic. <laughs> it just gave me this kind of sincere joy that I was able to see my favorite film in the cinemas before, you know, how many months it's been since I've been to the cinema afterwards. But you haven't been to the cinema in summer? Oh, uh, well, I have. Actually, I was at the film festival in Venice, so I really lucked oh, out. Yeah. I've I've watched 40 films there in the uh-huh. cinema, uh, which was insane also. Yeah. Caught Corona afterwards. Oh, damn. So it was like, but I think that's because of the airplane, not because of the cinemas. But that's an entirely different conversation. So I've seen a couple of films in cinemas and also when they reopened. But the new world, looking back at the past year, will have a special place in my heart only Aww. for the, you know, just the fact that I was able to see Dan. I was very happy to program. It was part of Terrence Malick's selected program, I believe. And I had to cancel a couple of shows. If there's one thing I hate, 
I don't want to sort of uh, tell you how much I love my job, but I do. Is <laughs> canceling movies. I just hate that. <laughs> so I had to cancel a couple of shows because you it, must have had a rough year then. Absolutely. Oh, <laughs> the, the thing that I hated the most about the Corona pandemic is the endless changes that there's constantly a change than when we were open and then we were closed and then we were open and then people were here and you have the good feeling about the buzz that you could feel that people were so happy that they could go to a cinema again you felt that it was really important for our community our audience audience in general to just see films together if you're living at home alone who are you going to discuss it with or if you're living with somebody you're going to discuss it with your girlfriend again i mean you know what she thinks about Terrence Malick's The New World. <laughs> yeah, and it's also, like, I, I want to ask you guys both how, like, staying at home in the past year has changed your viewing habits. Because at the beginning of the lockdown last year, I was immersing myself and obsessing over these very awful films or, like, series works. Not in the sense that the films are bad, but just that the subject matter is just so grim and gruesome. Somehow I wasn't really into like escaping reality but just maybe more embracing it so i was watching berlin uh, alexander plots the fassbinder <laughs> series oh boy <laughs> and i was watching all these these very realistically looking films about the soviet union by Ilya krzyzanowski the dao project which is all online <laughs> and which is just basically a bunch of people trapped in this soviet research facility and it's all awful and people get oh raped and killed so it's it's very bad you know in and I lived together with my girlfriend and she was really not get, feeling that vibe, you know? She needed something. <laughs> I, I don't imagine. blame her. Yeah. <laughs> so after a while, I was just kind of like, I just had to watch them in a separate room, you know? So it's like... Uh, oh man, I see you sitting there all alone in the dark little room. like Watching awful, Soviet awful propaganda. Like, <laughs> soul, soul stirring stuff. Yeah, so I, that's my question for you. Did did you do the same as me and do this masochistic kind of viewing? <laughs> oh, or did you watch a bit more pleasant things? Or did you still see cinema between quotation marks? Or more like Netflix, right? So like, what did your taste or your needs change? Kiriko, you first. I didn't go on that dark side that you went into. I have this, I mean, I may probably you guys have that as well, but I have this never-ending list of films that I always write down that are recommendations by people that tell me, oh, you really have to see this niche film or this iconic film that I still hadn't seen yet. And I just went, I just started at the top and I'm working my way down and I'm still doing that, which works absolutely fine. Maybe I did draw towards certain subjects that relate to the vibe that I'm in now during this quarantine. So I'm sort of at, at this moment, I'm researching silence and the experience of silence. And I'm watching a lot of films about that, which I'm sure is no coincidence in regards <laughs> of my, my current living situation. Yeah, but nothing, nothing very dark or extremely... Yeah, I, I wouldn't be able to pinpoint it into one certain category. Mm. Yeah, oh. well, I'm I am now in a more pleasant uh, state. Just <laughs> so in you a better place. Like, I'm, I'm watching late Clint Eastwood, which is all still kind of grim, but also very interesting and very you know 
accessible and Hollywood-esque, so don't worry about me. I'm fine. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> How about you, Tom? How are you doing? Well, you know, it's, my, my intake has always been very much everything uh, at the same time. I mean, if, if you look at the philosophy that I sort of put together for, for Lab on Eleven, the, for the cinema, is that I very much believe that everything can coexist together all the time, that there's no real highbrow or lowbrow thing going on so and that's also my intake if i look at this list now because i had to bring it up is that i've seen so many weird things mixed together one thing that i do want to point out is that years and years ago and i always loved this and that's why i love having watch lists i was watching an interview with gene wilder like the original willy wonka and he mentioned his favorite movie which was random harvest and I had fucking never heard about random that film. It's more like random movie. <laughs> random movie, yeah. <laughs> but I put it I put it on my watch list. And I think it was the first movie that I ever ever put on a watch list. So when the first lockdown hit, I was like, and now I'm gonna finally sit down and see what this is about. I will now at this first episode of this podcast state so that everybody knows this going going forward. I am a huge crier. I cry about everything in cinema, and I like very much to be manipulated. If I can feel manipulation working on me, I, that, that works very well for me. Random Harvest is completely that. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a film about a veteran who becomes an amnesiac, who is an amnesiac after the world, First World War, meets up with a music star, they get into a relationship, and then he has an accident, and he forgets the relationship and goes back and he, and he remembers everything that he his life that he had before that well you can fill in the blanks a bit well he couldn't but you can and so it's a very it's like this incredibly sentimental american uh, classic from 1942 which completely flopped so i watched that but then if to sort of show you a bit how my brain works the last thing that i saw at home was uh, you don't know me Nomi is not, it's the name of the, the girl from, the, the character from Showgirls. Thanks, it's a Versace. Which is like a far too long documentary about if Showgirls is complete crap or if it's a masterpiece. Masterpiece. I would also say masterpiece. But I would say, and that's the thing that the documentary tries to get into, and maybe may also something interesting to talk about, is that it still is shit. But it's a masterpiece, which I find very interesting that there's like this very sort of interesting group of films or this sort of, I would almost say a club of films, of films that are from some standpoints, absolutely deplorably, horribly shit, but still also a masterpiece. I think Sully maybe belongs in this group. <laughs> you really want to bring Clint into this I'm conversation. I'm sorry, I'm just going to reference maybe in the coming month, Clint every episode, but I think Sully definitely fits in the category. How and why? From one standpoint, all the late Clint Eastwood films look like shit. <laughs> like literally, like the lighting is crap. Like, the, is... like the baby in American Sniper, which is mm. just a doll. Yeah, there's just like he has some cheap cop outs, but that's also because he manages to produce films very quickly and he's very old. So I, I give him a break on that department because he has some very interesting themes that he's still exploring and that have been present in his work since he was an actor and then a director, I guess, maybe over 50 years ago. 
And now he's at this point where all those themes have become so incredibly reflexive, right? <laughs> that it doesn't really matter what the film looks like or how much plot or drama there is. It's sometimes the absence of drama that makes the film good because he's just constantly repeating the same questions, <laughs> but then giving it just a slightly different angle. I mean, it kind of gets it's just a mold where he puts things into theory thing, right? That if you if you have as a as an artist. You explore a certain theme and you do that very well and you elaborate on that all the time and maybe make it more difficult all the time because you show new angles. Mm -hmm. It adds up like the whole oeuvre becomes this accumulative work, body of work almost. So the single film in itself is maybe not as interesting as how the film relates to the whole body of film. At least that's what I'm now exploring with Clint Eastwood. I'm like, I feel like I'm just at the tip of the iceberg. There's all of these things, you know, of course, with the hero's journey that his characters have. What is a hero in the 21st century in an age where we don't really believe in war anymore and where we don't believe our politicians and where, you know, everything is kind of a lie as well. So what is still true about some of those core values on which mostly, you know, the West and America is built, a thing that he mythologized throughout his career all the time from being a cowboy, you know, to being... God knows what else. He is the quintessential American man. So what does it mean to be that? Like that just gets explored all the time. Suddenly, this is a Clint Eastwood podcast. I'm sorry. No, no, no. That's the thing. It's like a film like <clears throat> Sully in itself is maybe not great if it's the first Clint Eastwood you would ever see. You would wake up from a coma and you've never seen a Clint Eastwood film and you would see Sully. I'm not sure if you would like it. But if you see all of these other films, I, I guess with Showgirls, it's kind of the same, right? If you place it in the system of American True, movies yeah. and of American culture, that kind of culture that peaked in the 80s and then became weird in the 90s, you could say. That's, I think, what Showgirls is about. But I want to go back to this idea what you're saying, like that you want to be manipulated, right? Yeah. It's an anecdote. I was at a film festival in Poland, in Krakow once, uh, in a, on a jury. It was the first time mm. I was on the jury of the International Film Festival. And uh, it's a film critic jury. And I was with this ancient Polish film historian and film critic. He could have been Clint Eastwood's age. <laughs> he was 81 when we were in the jury together. And wow. is also quite old Russian film scholar and critic. And accidentally, or apparently me and the ancient Polish guy had the exact same film taste because we definitely preferred the same film. And during our deliberation, we're like, this film is going to win. It was this very sentimental film. I already said I like the new world a lot. So I like sentimentality. And the Russian film critic, scholar guy was so pissed off. He hated the film. He hated the film. But we just kind of strong armed him out, put a vote <laughs> on it. And that film won. <laughs> and then later he came to me, he approached me when we were alone. And he said, Hugo, I teach my students. And he like looked at me like, you could have been one of my students, you know, the age difference. Oh, <laughs> I teach my students that cinema is nothing else than a play of shadow and light. If you do <laughs> any oh, more God. than engage with the shadow and the light, you are falling in the emotional trap of the movie. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> we don't fall in the emotional trap of the movie. We look at film as film. <laughs> wow. I was like, well, I like being in the emotional <laughs> trap right. of the movie. So I'm sorry, but... <laughs> but you know what's funny that I'm realizing now that I'm totally on his side of the spectrum? 
because I have never in my life cried seeing a movie. And I've truly challenged myself, like also during this <laughs> lockdown, to look at all these films that people have recommended me that they were sure that were going to make me cry. And the moment that I feel wait, that... Wait, ho, ho, wait. You have people who are recommending you films that you're going to cry oh, to? Oh, definitely. But it's also a question that I'm asking <laughs> That's people a real all the thing time. Now. Have you seen The New World? I'm not a Terrence Malick fan, but maybe I should. Maybe I should. <laughs> maybe it makes you cry. I don't know. It it's, makes me cry every time. I'll definitely give it a try because it's something I also would like to experience. It somehow seems very relieving for a lot of people. And as you say, it's like, a very joyous moment for you in, in, in some weird way. Yeah, very much so. <laughs> also because I feel that the thing is doing that. And, that, and I find yeah. that incredibly magical that I'll, I'll get this out of the way right now. Yes, I cry right in the middle of the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah. Although I know that movie is only doing that. That is the only thing the movie is doing. It has, has completely been built to manipulate your feelings, not in a sort of grimy, dirty, nasty way of we're going to manipulate the people now. No, but it is built. It's, it's engineered for emotion. Exactly. Yeah. It is a watch which runs so that you cry. But I have this thing with movies that I cry or I laugh or I kind of do both at the same time <laughs> when I'm just in awe of how good a thing is. And you know, you can say a lot about this Shawshank Redemption, but it's engineered to perfection, you could say. And that's also something to laugh or cry about, like, True. because it just kind of hits you. Like, I think I could put a minute mark on the moment where I have to cry with the new world, because it's the most tremendous sequence in the film. It's coincidentally also around the end, because you have this cumulative process of dealing with all the love troubles that I was talking about and all the other intense stuff that's going on because it is a film also about colonialism so it's not just oh love it's like history you know? mm -hmm. but there's just this very specific montage and just this very specific shot hits and of a beak i mean it's just a little beak <laughs> it's a little bit of water flowing and it just gets me every yeah. time <laughs> i well actually i'm gonna relate with you now there is this thing where in the thin red line where the first bombing hits and it's Nick Naughty uh, screaming on top of a mountain. This is a war! It's a goddamn battle! And I think it when the one of the first bombs hits, he just cuts away completely to a tree with a little bird that just fallen out of it. And it's deeply touching for... I have no idea how. Yeah, uh, I did but... not have that experience with the <laughs> <red line. laughs> Tom, do you uh, think about this when you curate your program you think if you i'm gonna to... make people cry yeah. <laughs> uh no not really there is uh, something else that i think about a lot lately which i could bring up now because you said the quote from the polish the uh, russian the, the russian <laughs> that's even more stern i always really liked I always really liked a quote by roger ebert who says that uh, cinema is a machine for creating empathy which it's a bit much, I guess, but I f stand firmly behind that statement, I guess. Is that a motto for, for programming films? I'm not sure because, I mean, I don't have to cry when I watch Dirty Dancing, although there certainly are people who will cry at the lift, I guess, at the end. But no, I don't take that into account, really. I mean, I've played Antichrist here. I mean... Uh... But yeah, I mean, it's like... <laughs> 
we were now focusing also on on laughter and crying i guess those are expressions of emotions that some, for some people are very you know readily available but i think the most and i think elliot touched upon that as well in his in episode zero right that the most interesting and intriguing film about thing about film is just having this constant battle of emotions stirring inside you and all of them can also be there at the same time you know antichrist is a great film because it's also all the time very distressing and then sometimes weirdly beautiful and touching and funny right there's so many ways to deal with film and that film also in particular i don't know it's just like i really like to have my guard down all the way and then i just can only laugh and cry in the cinemas <laughs> if something is very good like I remember seeing the latest Mission Impossible on opening evening in this big pate here in Amsterdam and just laughing my ass off for like the whole film because it's just so good. (laughs) (laughs) It's like just so good and then it becomes funny or just or maybe it's not funny, but it's my way of expressing that it's great, right? Mm. Yeah, oh, that's so sweet. my my way my way of expression my emotions during Antichrist was that I was I was infuriated that entire film and I deeply cherished that experience still. Yeah, that's like just like I, hating a movie is I had that also Mother of Darren Aronofsky, but I still hate the movie. I, I love Mother. Yeah. Oh, I love Mother because I was I was completely feeling the hyperpotential all the way, and usually I completely hate that. But man, that was a that was a, just a B movie made by somebody who was actually trying to pose all sorts of questions and not giving any answers. I, I want to ask while we're still staying on the subject of sentimentality, what's your favorite moment here at Lab? And sort of relating back to the question of why we love cinema. Why oh, that's a film. that's a great question. Yeah. And see if it lines up with what a couple of our audience members have. It, uh, well, the, the the thing a couple of years ago. We started doing participatory screenings because I wanted to bring in like these midnight movie sort of kind of experiences. And I think we started out with uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, I think four years ago. Mm. Uh, Yeah, and done that now more than 12 times, I think. And everyone, every single one has been sold out and every single one has been completely different. People come up completely dressed up as Frank Conferter or... The best thing was that when we did the first one, there was a guy who came dressed up in four, I think, four different uh, sort of setups he made. And he just started performing in front of the screen. As (laughs) is tradition. But I mean, we didn't invite the guy. So (laughs) the next time he, we didn't get his number. So we we thought like, oh my God, we, we hope he comes again. Next time he came again. Then we just started inviting him and like sort of like, do you want some drinks? Because you're here mm-hmm. again. And uh, so we sort of started a collaboration and then we later did that at Lowlands as well, inviting him again and then stuff like that. But on that note, we also started screening the other masterpiece, which is complete, made of complete shit, is uh, The Room. And uh, Tommy Wiseau's The Room, which is still tearing me apart. You are tearing me apart! <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, <laughs> and I remember the first screening we did of that was a sold out one. I read the book uh, by the guy who plays Mark. <laughs> what a story, Mark. Uh, the book is a great story. And it was a completely rowdy crowd. And I sat in the middle with some colleagues of mine, all sort of ha- holding those spoons, all pictures in his house 
are frames featuring spoons for some reason. And the tradition is with these screenings that you throw spoons and you scream, spoon, spoon, spoon. And while sitting there, like people throwing spoons and stuff like that, I was like, this is by far the strangest experience I've ever had. It feels like bone, 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 like a religious one, like the complete amalgamation of what it feels like to be together with other people sharing something. But what we're sharing is horrible. <laughs> it's just, and it's not like a pain thing or something like that. Like where if you're feeling the pain of this guy who made this deeply shit film that's also just great in being terrible. But it's, I, know, I don't know, it's, all, it's yeah, hard I to describe. I now picture all these people in a house of worship and then the guy goes to the next one like, yo, this is low-key crap, right? And the like, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> that's why we love it. <laughs> yeah, I think that was my most memorable experience here because, yeah, I mean, that was so out there. Feels like you've created a very safe space here at Lab 111. Lab 111 is maybe too safe for some. <laughs> Should we hear what some of our audience said? Too? Yeah, yeah, yeah sure. I'd love to hear some. Okay, so we had Zuby7A who said, when I saw all the Ghibli movies for the first time ever at a lab in the summer of 2018, it was a magical summer. Was it a magical summer for you? <laughs> yeah, <Tom. laughs> oh, well, I think that really put us on the map for some well not for some reason i mean it showed that uh, miyazaki and ghibli are are so extremely beloved by such a huge very how do you say very diverse crowd it's funny that people always say that we screened all of them <laughs> we didn't but <laughs> there's so many <laughs> but there yeah, are so many so yeah many. well i don't know if that'll be good news or bad news for <laughs> for zuba <laughs> uh this other one i really like again related to lab I've missed Victoria and all the possible festivals and occasions. And then you, Tom, brought it to Lab 111. <laughs> she stresses you <laughs> with English subs. And Where I remember sitting in the cinema and feeling this long anticipation of, oh, now it will finally happen. And then I got lost, completely enamored by a film that doesn't stop. <laughs> I love this uh, remark because it's, I mean, Victoria is, there's no cuts in there. And the thing that, of course, cinema does so beautifully is that it cuts and cuts and cuts and your mind for some reason knows what's going on but what i liked about the mark is that that is of course the thing that you miss when you're watching a movie at home something always cuts in your life cuts in yeah. which doesn't really happy happen uh, when you're um, when you're at a cinema of course you're you're much more focused mm -hmm. i always start doing the dishes and then at some point i was like what i'm watching mank how am i doing the dishes now <laughs> well to be fair mank deserves to have the dishes washed at the same time yeah there were a lot of moments in mank where you could exactly just do the dishes great dishwasher yeah. movie <laughs> I, I played mank on my dishwasher's little lcd screen <laughs> fincher's so happy with you like fincher intended <laughs> finally we got the this is quite a long one, but I think it's worth reading. So he paints the picture of it's a summer evening in the Italian city of Bologna. <laughs> You're cute, Italian. <laughs> when the last remnants of the sun drop under the horizon, the main square is completely packed. Together with my friend and hundreds of happy people, we assembled in front of the silver screen that the organization of Cinema Ritrovato Festival has put up between the church and the Palazzo del Podesta. Full of anticipation, 
Some occupied the hundreds of chairs in the square. Others sit on the stairs of the large San Petroni church. It's a scene that quite incredibly repeats every summer night for weeks on end. And this particular evening, everyone is extra excited because after dusk, the festival screens the famous work of Buster Keaton and Charlie Chaplin, their films Cops and The Kid. And in an act of true cinema wonder, the organisation hired a complete live orchestra to underscore the silent movies. Every bit of this evening is just as perfect, from the scenic setting to the smiles on everyone's faces, from the aperitivo in our stomach to the cold beer yet to arrive there, from the likes of Charlie Chaplin on the silver screen to the live orchestra under it. It felt like we were dropped into cinema heaven. There's magic to that two hour long immersion, cut off from the rest of the world and dozed into another one from the comfort of your cinema seat. Please don't convince yourself for one moment that the home cinema experience can in any way emulate that. Wow. Yeah, There's a lot great. to unpack here. Yeah. Who amongst us does not miss the great festival screens? And then especially if it's in the open air with live music. Yeah. First of all, I've tried to go to Cinema Retrovato for years now, also before I started working at Lab. But for some reason, my dad was great at uh, driving through Bologna, going back to Holland, stopping there, and it was always one day after the festival had ended. <laughs> and then there were still the chairs there and the screen and this and this really big billboard saying like, you could have seen, <laughs> you could have seen all of Fellini's films yesterday, uh, which is just such a bummer always. Did you annoy uh, your dad these summers? It feels like, he, was he mocking you in some way? Or? Uh, uh, no, my dad, he was surely mocking me, yes. Um, this is a no. very specific trauma for me because I once was in Barcelona with girlfriend X a long time ago and mm. I was into movies and she was not and there was a Pasolini exhibition and we did oh, not boy. go. <laughs> and that's not one where you can, re where you can say like, Ah, oh, come on! Just go for me. Just <laughs> like let's that, just watch Salo together, just for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was the exhibition. It was not the film screen. Well, it's a trauma. It's oh, triggering, triggering. Boy. I now have to think of a thing that um, I was uh, listening to a, another podcast, which we won't advertise, where um, Quentin Tarantino was uh, describing screenings of his, of, of Salo at his cinema in uh, the New Beverly Cinema. And that there's always, when that movie is screened, some uproar. And that he was saying, like, this is something that only happens in cinemas, that for some reason the, the togetherness can also can be a powder keg of people. Mm. And, and he describes a woman standing up in the middle of Salo and screaming, Pasolini was killed in a small town in Italy. Good for him. <laughs> <laughs> and I was that like, oh boy. Oh, That's oh boy. And it shows you that how cinema can just get under your skin. Yeah, like The Rotterdam Film Festival was last week. Online, mm. you know, and I really miss people shouting in Rotterdam at the <laughs> screen. Like, I remember a person, I don't even remember the film, but I only remember a person standing up and shouting, You are all perverts, and then walking <laughs> away. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, I miss being with my fellow perverts <laughs> on the film festival scene. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so, has this discussion sort of left you really missing? cinema yeah i do really miss it i think all of us understand why we're not doing it all the time right now <laughs> but i do feel like everybody is very ready to go back to cinema screening room there's also a lot of films in the netherlands that should have been released that aren't that are actually really good that i'm really looking forward to 
some of them that I've also only seen at home, which the films don't really deserve some of them. Like there's this great film called Beginning, which is apt title for our first podcast episode <laughs> uh, by this Georgian director, Dea Kolumbagashvili. And it's this very, you know, stern framing, very slowly composed film that in a way so meticulous, but a lot of that magic does get lost when you watch it at home. So when the cinemas reopen, I'm definitely going to look up that one as soon as possible. But yeah. And you, Kiriko? I think I've sort of settled a, a small home cinema setup and I've really tried to recreate that experience as much as I can at home. So I have this really huge screen in my living room right now and I try to get as much popcorn in my home to watch films, <laughs> which I never do when I go to the cinema. So it's kind of silly. It's more nostalgia. <laughs> um, but having this conversation now, it really, it also uh, made me think of many experiences that I had in the cinema in the past. And yeah, I have to say I'm really sad that we can for now just talk about this and not relive it. But it's, it's somewhat, something to look forward to, definitely. Finally, Tom. Yeah, no, I mean, it goes without saying that I, I wish um, my cinema would open again. Uh, I, last year was just incredibly rough. I, I, I was happy that we were open again. I was happy that to see the people and then I was sad again because I had to, s to see them go. I do, as, as you guys said, it's a safe place. I do think we kind of created a safe place for, for people to, I mean, we screen a lot of classics. so. It's um, it's I'm always trying to sort of bring a program of things that people wanted to see. As one of the listeners wrote in, like Victoria, for instance, is part of a program we're doing where I try to bring in films that were released like a couple of years ago, but not that long ago, but still should be seen on a big screen. I mean, Victoria is a very good example, for instance, of a film that should be enjoyed on a big screen in focus without cuts. So yeah, I, I do miss that weird, not only the weird experience, the, the sort of magical experience of seeing a movie in, in a cinema, but also just, the, here we go, I'm going to be, I'm going to be pretty sentimental uh, from now on, I think. Uh, the <laughs> sort of, uh, we have been for an hour, the sort of togetherness, I mean, like doing stuff with complete strangers that you share something with, it's, it's just fantastic. I think on that. I think the best way to keep your sentimentality is <laughs> for our audience just to write in and tell us more about what you miss about cinema. But also, <laughs> you is going to be doing the next episode all about why cinema is a lie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we already touched upon the, the, the manipulation. I should have kept that anecdote for Michael. <laughs> no, but we're going to talk a little bit because we're now all just really loving the films. You know, we're talking about our love for cinema, but are we also loving the lie? And there's many sides to film, of course, that we can talk about that have to deal with those things. So we're going to talk about that next week. Yeah, and please write in whether you think Hugo is right or wrong. Are we going to take the blue pill? <laughs> or are we going to take the red pill? <laughs> I combine them. That's the best thing to do. <laughs> See what happens. But otherwise, I think that's uh, the end of our first one. Yes. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. And that's a wrap. Thank you very much for listening to our first show. We hope you enjoyed it. It was a roller coaster. Who would have guessed that Tom cries at absolutely everything? 
If you head on over to our brand new website, celebratingcinema.com, you'll be able to find a whole list of all the films that were mentioned. So we hope you have some fun diving through that. Otherwise, if you have any questions, suggestions, feel free to email us at celebratingcinema at lab111.nl. Thank you very much, and we hope you look forward to joining us on this crazy old ride. Thank you.